All right, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful day. Uh, Lord Jesus, I'm halfway tempted to dismiss us to go to our Thanksgiving lunch. It is so beautiful outside. And we praise you for your creation, Father, because we can see your invisible qualities through everything you've created. The stars, the moon, the sun, the changing of seasons, even the green grass still, the cooler air. Father, we thank you for your creation because it worships you. It calls out to you. And Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would be our teacher, that you would open our hearts and minds to your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the great and good shepherd. You know each and every one of us. You know exactly how we're doing today. And I praise you that you will touch us and minister to us through your word, through your spirit, through your presence. Father, give me your words that I would declare only what you want, nothing else, so that you are glorified. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen and amen. You may be seated. It is a joy seeing all of you here today. I wish I could see the faces up in the balcony, but with that sun coming through, all I see is shadow. So those in the balcony, welcome. And those online worshiping with us, welcome. We're so glad that you're here today. Today is an awesome day. It's one of my favorite passages. It is Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 38. You could open your Bibles to that passage or even you just turn your cell phone back on if you've got it on your phone. But before we dive into this passage... We are going through our vision series, and we're looking at five values that we are as a church. Say five. 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 You can say it real Southern. Five. Five values. And we've looked at them all. The very first one was the gospel, first and always. And then we looked at the fact that we're uniquely called, and then also intentional innovation, and then crossing cultures. And don't get nervous. Today is not Spanish Sunday, even though we sing a lot in Spanish today. But we love it, the cultures. We had a Discover class today. There were one, two, three, four nationalities in our membership class today. Just love it. It's amazing. And it's a gift. And one day we will gather around the throne and we will worship Jesus and people from every tongue, tribe, and nation language will be there. It's amazing. And then today, it's multiplication matters. Say it, multiplication matters. Okay, who likes math? Raise your hand if you love math. Very few of us. I love math. I love it. And when I was in first grade, I could do great math, but I couldn't read a lick. And I hated writing. And back then in the 70s, they would give us this writing booklet. In the paper, it had like two dark lines, top and bottom, and this dotted line in the middle. And you had to do your A's and your B's and your D's. That's a joke, guys. They didn't learn me real good in school with my ABDs. I'm a little dyslexic, not much, just a tiny little bit. But I tell you what, the B's, P's, D's, Q's were hard. And the type of eraser they would give us back then in the 70s was so hard, it was like rock. And I could never get my letters right. It was always erasing, and the paper was so thin that one quick little erase, it would just burn right through about 10 of those pages. I hated reading class. It took to like second, third grade before I could really read. But math, on the other hand, I'm going to brag, okay? I know we shouldn't be prideful. In first grade, I was doing third and fourth grade math. I loved it. And I can remember going to the third grade class sometimes doing math with them, all these big kids in there. 
And I can still remember walking up to my teacher with my special math book because me and one other nerd in first grade, we were sitting to a corner during math section. And I remember coming to her and say, teacher, how do you do this? Because I can't read this real good. And it was reading problems. So they all don't worry about that, Doug. You got it. It's multiplication. And I loved multiplication tables. It was awesome to win those things. When I got into college, I tested out a calculus. And I'll never forget after testing out, and I still had to take another calc class. And I got to miss the whole first half of the first semester. And I got into that class halfway through the semester. I went my very first day just to know where the class was, who my professor was, so he could know who I was, that I wasn't some derelict basketball player that was just skipping class. So eight weeks into that semester, I went back in, and we had an exam that first week. I took that exam and left. I thought, whoo, I'm in trouble. A week later, I got, we got our exams back, and I had a 39 on it. And he said, please see me after class. I was like, I'm, I'm not going to be able to play basketball. And I went to class, and he said, would you like to be a math major? I said, no, sir. He, I said, why do you ask? He says, well, you haven't been here for eight weeks, and you got the highest grade in the class. And I said, you know, it's okay with me. I'll take that bell curve, and I'm out of here after that semester. Math. Multiplication. Multiplication matters. That's our fifth value. Say five. Okay, say it real Texan. Five. Five, our fifth value as a church. And if you want to know what our vision statement is, it's that blue sign on the chapel. And the chapels where we're going to have Thanksgiving lunch in a few minutes. So if you didn't bring anything, that's okay. You can bring your hunger and join us after church. But our vision is we want to engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere, anytime, with anybody. And over these past five weeks, we've been unpacking how we do that with gospel first and always and uniquely called an intentional innovation and crossing cultures. Today, multiplication matters. Multiplication matters. Right here in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and I'm going to share just briefly a little bit of the context. Here in chapter 1, Mark, we looked at Mark about two, two years ago, the gospel of Mark. Mark is like the summary of the summary of the gospels. I mean, it, Mark uses the word immediately and instantly and immediately. And he focuses a whole lot about the power and authority of Jesus. And Jesus was a carpenter's son, and he was a carpenter. He lived as a, in a poor Jewish family, as a poor Jewish boy. And his father, Joseph, who was a carpenter as well, raised him up to be a carpenter. Now, they knew that he was God's son. And we're going to come into the Christmas season very soon. We're going to celebrate that. But they knew who Jesus was. They didn't really know, but they knew. But Jesus was a carpenter until he was about 30 years old. And then he became a rabbi. And right here in Mark chapter 1, we see it very quickly. He was baptized by John the Baptist, not so that he could be forgiven of sins, but as identifying with us as humans, as broken humans who are in need of a Savior and who are in need of salvation and forgiveness. And then it says he was led out by Holy Spirit to the desert where he fasted for 40 days and he was tempted by the devil. And he resisted those temptations. And then he, and he was filled with Holy Spirit. And then afterwards, it says he was brought back by Holy Spirit back into Galilee, into Capernaum. Capernaum is just a tiny little town right there on the Sea of Galilee. It's one of Jesus' home base of where he did ministry and where he started ministry. And here in chapter 1, he then calls out his first couple disciples. So Jesus doesn't even have his full ministry team yet. He is just getting started on his ministry. 
And if you look right here in chapter 1, verse 21, and I don't, this won't be on the screen, but verse 22 will be. But it says that Jesus went into Capernaum, and right away he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath. So for Jewish culture and custom and time, that's Saturday, and the synagogue was kind of like church. It's where the Old Testament was teach and it was taught and where the, where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would teach and people would gather on the Sabbath to hear God's word, the Old Testament. And as a good rabbi, as a new rabbi, Jesus is there with a couple of his followers, Peter, John, James, and Andrew. That's probably it. And he goes into the synagogue and he teaches. And what does verse 22 say? Look at what it says. And it will be on the screen, verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. It says the people in that synagogue were astonished. Say astonished. Astonished. Now, this is not an English class, okay? I'm repeating it a lot. But they were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he taught with authority, not like the scribes. Now, one of my prayers is y'all's pastor. Some of y'all call me preacher. I'll be honest with you. I don't like that title. I just don't. I mean, that's me. But one of my prayers for myself as I preach and teach you all is that I would preach with authority and with power, not mine, but Holy Spirit, so that Jesus is glorified. But Jesus taught with this power and this authority that these people were not used to. And I can imagine that many of you all have been in services every Sunday where the preacher is preaching with authority and with power. Half y'all didn't get that joke. Y'all are slow today. Where he preached with authority, he taught with power, and it makes me wonder, well, how did the scribes do it? What was it in Jesus where they were astonished. But all of us have been in services where we've heard someone preach and teach, where we walk away, wow. And it seems like we're eating out of their hand. And it seems like every word they say, it's like life and like living water, as if we're getting this huge cold drink of water after running a marathon or having worked outside all day. And it's like, this is amazing. And so that's the context of what is going on. And who is this man? We know the story of Jesus, but these people don't. Isn't this a carpenter? Like, who is this Jesus? And he's preaching with an authority that they've never heard before. And I can imagine Holy Spirit was opening up their hearts and minds to understand what was going on in the Old Testament teaching that Jesus was proclaiming as he was revealing to them the new covenant and that the kingdom of God was near revealing to them in a fresh, new, deep, real way who Jesus is, who God is, who the Father is. Because you see, Jesus said many times, I came to reveal the Father. And for some of us, Father is a bad word because we rather didn't have a Father or our Father was an angry, hard, harsh ogre. And when we think of God as Father, we're like, ugh, no. But when you see Jesus, you see the Father. So before you write the Father off, I want to challenge you. Look at Jesus. Because the way Jesus lived, the way he acted, the way he treated people, that's the Father. Because Jesus revealed the Father. And so he preaches and he teaches with authority. But then not only that, if we jump down to verse 28, 
Actually, let's read verse 27. Mark 1, verse 27, again, it says, they were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. You see, because as Jesus was teaching, there was a man in that synagogue who was possessed by a demon. And the demon began to manifest itself. And Jesus rebuked the demon and cast the demon out and the man was set free. And so these people are not only astonished by Jesus' teaching, but by the power that flows out of Jesus. And they're left astonished and amazed. And they ask, who is this? He even commands the demons and he sets them free. And let me tell you, when you see Jesus work in the lives and hearts of someone and touches them and he brings forgiveness and physical healing and emotional healing, and he even sets captives free, the demonic free. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the devil and the demons are very real. And one of the strongholds here in the United States is unbelief, the unbelief that there is spiritual warfare. And I'll tell you this, out of 25 years of a lot of experience with the demonic, they do not want us to know that they're around. And they're here to lie, kill, kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus has come to set the captives free in every way. In every way. And for some of us, we are under demonic oppression. And we only Jesus can set us free. And I'm not blaming the devil on everything. But there are principalities and there are strongholds. And Jesus has overcome every one of them. So as he sets this man free, the people are left astonished. Even the unclean spirits obey him. And they have to obey. Because at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, what? That Jesus is Lord. Verse 28, at once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Here's the awesome thing. In verse 29, all the way down to verse 34, Jesus then goes into, he leaves the synagogue, he goes into Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And I got a tiptoe here about mother-in-laws. I'm just teasing. I have the best mother-in-law in the world. So if you're a mother-in-law, I'm sorry, but mine is the best. Thank you. Isn't that right, Simon and Ashley? Yes, they know. Thank you, Christy. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, and she gets up and begins to serve. And that's one of the things that we have to be really careful, because many of us come to Jesus for what we're going to get out of it. But Jesus touches and heals us and transforms us and saves us and fills us with his presence so that we can serve. And one of the greatest strongholds here in America, in the United States, is we want to try to find the church that best fills me and best serves me. The church is not a supermarket. It is a kingdom. A kingdom where we have a king who calls us to come to his feet, to bow the knee and to die to ourselves and to live for him. It is not Walmart or Kmart, which is already gone. Praise the Lord. No. It is a kingdom of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And right here in verse 32, after Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, it says, when evening came after the sun had set. And I wonder why Mark uses all these details. The sun has set evening. They brought to him 
all those who are sick and demon-possessed. How many? All. He brought all them who are sick and demon-possessed, and the whole town was assembled at the door. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in a house and the whole town, hundreds of people are in the house, outside of the house? I will never forget when revival hit our church in Mexico, and I pray for revival here. Our tiny little church building, which was about the size of the chapel, was packed, and we had a basketball court right next to our church, and people were standing at the doors. And it wasn't because we were doing we weren't doing anything, anything different. The Holy Spirit was moving so powerfully where there was life transformation. So people had flocked to this house, and it says that they brought what? They brought everyone who is sick and demon-possessed. The whole town was there. And then in verse 34, it says, And he healed many who are sick and with various diseases. And he would not let the demons, he would not permit them to speak because they knew him. Because Jesus had a mission. And you might read through the Gospels wondering, why was Jesus always telling everybody, shh, don't tell anybody what happened. Shh, don't tell anybody what happened. Don't, shh, don't tell anybody who I am. Why? Because he knew that that popularity would get in his way for fulfilling the mission of his father, which was to go to the cross. And Jesus knew that he had to train and equip a very few so that then the multiplication matter would explode at Pentecost. And Jesus didn't want to get popularity or notoriety to get in the way of his mission. What gets in the way of your walk with Jesus? Now, here's the key. And I'll be honest with you. I've really struggled with this passage this week because there's so many things in here. And how does it relate to multiplication matters? Think of the context. And I've really focused on the context. Jesus just starts his ministry and he goes into the synagogue and he preaches and teaches and people are left with, wow, this is amazing. And then there's a demon possessed man who manifests himself there. And Jesus casts out the demon and brings healing to that man. And after that service, he goes to Peter's house and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then she gets up right away and starts serving Jesus and the rest who are in the room, in the house. And then that night, hundreds of people flock to that house and Jesus is healing so many sick people. I mean, think about it. Think about the miracles and signs and wonders. I pray that we can just get to Nazareth where Jesus could only do a few things. But one of my questions is, do you expect, do I expect to see the miracles of Jesus? We sang way maker, miracle maker, promise keeper. Do we expect Jesus to work powerfully in our lives and in our families? Or have we become so dull with the doldrums and difficulties of life, especially these past two years, where all of us, our eggs have been scrambled completely because of COVID. And we're struggling and we're worn out and we're exhausted and we're tired. And we just want to call time out. I'm done. I'm finished. I did time out. Jesus said that in the last days, the last days, the, it, the evil will be so great that the love of many will draw cold. Has your love drawn cold? And if it has, I want to strongly encourage you. Look for Jesus, find Jesus, and ask him to fan the flame of your love for him again. So after this amazing day and evening of incredible ministry, think of how tired Jesus is. I'm a people person. I love to be with people almost all day long. But I'll admit today, after this morning and lunch and other things, I'll be tired. I'm going to want a timeout. I'll be tired. 
Jesus was the most sought-after person who's ever lived. People were constantly flocking to him to get something from him. You see, we're all ticks. And we're looking for that dog to suck that lifeblood out. What can I get out of you? What can I get out of you? What can I get out of you? And everybody's seeking Jesus. He goes to bed late that night. And what does it say right here in verse 35? Very early in the morning. Say very. Early. Early in the morning. Before the sun came up. Is that what it says? While it was still dark. Okay, Doug's version. While it was still dark. You know, we can meet with Jesus anywhere, anytime, with anybody. Sounds almost like our vision statement, right? We can do our Devo and read our Bible late at night. We can do it in the living room. We can do it in the bedroom and the bathroom. But I'll tell you this, throughout Scripture, especially the Psalms, which is the prayer book of the early church and the Jewish faith, there's something special about the morning. There's something unique about when we get up very early in the morning, and I find it interesting, before, while it was still dark, Jesus, he got up. Think how tired he is. How many hours do you think he slept? Four? Maybe five? Got some people in here yawning already. Very early in the morning, Jesus got up while it was still dark, and he made his way to a deserted place. Makes me wonder, what was that? Did he go walk down to the Sea of Galilee? Did he go find a rock to sit on? Did he walk up and sit under some tree? Like, he went to a deserted place very early in the morning. Think how tired physically and emotionally he was. After spending the whole previous day serving and teaching and praying for people, healing people, casting out demons. Think how exhausted he was. And he slept a few hours. Maybe he slept eight hours. But very early he got up and he went to a deserted place to pray. Well, I thought we prayed to Jesus. Technically, we pray to the Father through Jesus and power and the power of Holy Spirit. If we want to really get technical, that's how it works. That's how the Trinity works in us. We approach the Father because of Jesus through him and the power and presence of Holy Spirit. Okay, Jesus is the Son. And he knows he's 100% God and he's 100% man. And it's hard to understand that, but you'll be able to say the only word that I could spell in first grade, wow, W-O-W. I couldn't mix that up. You can spell it backwards too. That will be the word we will say in heaven when we finally see God and who all he is and all we'll be able to do is bow before him and be like, wow. Here Jesus is as a human, as a man, fully God and fully man, but he's a man, he's a human just like you, just like me. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets worn out. He gets exhausted, and yet he gets up early. And he's showing us how we should live. He didn't come just to be a good example, but he is the example. That each and every one of us, if Jesus needs to commune with the Father, how much more do we need to commune with the Father? If Jesus needs to get up early and spend time in prayer, how much more should we get up early and spend time in prayer? And I don't want to lay a heavy guilt trip on us. I don't. 
And I know most of us, if we are a church and we've been in church and we read the Bible, we know we should pray. We know we should pray. So please don't hear this guilt and throwing stones, but I've got to ask the question, how often do you pray? How often do you seek the Father's heart? How often do you actually do get up? And maybe it has to be at night. And mothers with littles, have a lot of grace with yourself. It is so hard. And please don't beat yourself up when you've got diapers and dirty diapers and hungry little ones. Because sometimes all you can do is stay in bed because you've been up all night. But I remember watching Christy with our three when they were little and how hard it was for her. So we need to be full of grace because we have seasons in life where getting up early in the morning is the last thing we could possibly do. So don't, if you're feeling a lot of guilt from me, don't, please, it's not that. What I'm focusing on is we truly need to connect with our Heavenly Father. He is our life. He is our fountain. He is our rock. He is the one who pours everything into us. And it's not to see what we can get out of Him. It's because we were created for Him. We were created for His glory. We were created to have a deep personal relationship with God, and it's through Jesus, filled with Holy Spirit. You see, there's a passage in Ecclesiastes, and I've always heard this, and I've always been confused, and so I did a deep dive on this. Ecclesiastes, it's one of the most cynical, it is the most cynical book in all of Scripture, and there's things in there you're just like, really, and you've got to take the whole counsel of Scripture in order to understand Ecclesiastes. But Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, look at what it says here. And and Solomon, he's declaring, he, talking about God, has made everything appropriate in its time. You see, there's a time for everything. There is a time when we will go through suffering and pain and deep, dark valleys and rejection and will be tempted and tried in ways that seem so far above anything that we could ever overcome. And there'll be seasons of joy and of rejoicing and of healing And we have to remember we live in a dark, broken, sinful world where we will be crushed many times. But as Paul declares, we might be perplexed, we might be crushed, but we are not broken. And we do overcome. We are more than victors. And it's because of Jesus and what he does. But look what he does in life. But look what it says here in the second part of this verse. He has also put eternity in their hearts. You see, each and every one of us, because we are created in God's image, and I'm sure you probably have heard, there's like this God vacuum in our hearts, like there's this part of our heart that only God can fill. God has created us as his image bearers, where every human on this planet, there's this deep longing in our soul and our spirit, longing for him. And unfortunately, most of us don't know it. And it's one of the main reasons why we see thousands of religions And there's only one way, and it's Jesus. But there's this deep yearning in the heart and soul of every human. Now it gets broken by sin, and it's dead, and it's just completely clouded over. But all of us have this deep yearning to commune with our Heavenly Father and to be reconciled and reunited back to Him. And that's why you see all these these religions and all these addictions because there's this hunger that's going on inside, wanting to get back with him, 
And us humans, because we're sinful and because we're dead to our sin, we go after it a million different directions trying to fill that void. And some of us even say, well, I've already tried Jesus. But you don't try Jesus. It's not like putting on a new coat or a new pair of shoes. It's not like trying a new drug or a new experience. And we live in a day and age where it's all about being authentic or having an authentic experience. But let me tell you, sometimes following Jesus doesn't feel authentic at all, and it's extremely painful. And if we base our faith off of what we feel, we will be like a ship without a rudder in the ocean, tossed by every wave. Our faith is not based off of what we feel, but off of who God is and his faithful promises. It's him, it's not us, and it's definitely not our feelings. So we see Jesus, and I've preached about seven sermons today. That's okay. If Jesus needs to commune with his Father every day, how much more us? Because Jesus knew in order to start his new kingdom, he would have to not only show the way, but be the way and reveal to us that if you want to live a life completely sold out for Christ, full of Holy Spirit, we've got to be connected with him every day deeply and intimately in prayer and worship. And then I love this next, and this is funny to me. It says right here in verse 36, Simon and his companions searched for him. Could you imagine how these disciples felt? Jesus is gone, and there's still people waiting at the door to be healed. Where's Jesus? And they, I wonder how long they looked for Jesus. Was it 30 minutes, 15 minutes? Was it an hour? Was it a half a day? Looking for Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? I don't know where Jesus is. Oh my gosh, we got all these sick people here. There's demon possessed people here. Why don't you try praying for them? I'm not doing that. Well, you, that's Jesus. That's not me. I, you know, it, I, have you ever st- stuck your foot in your mouth or gotten involved in a situation? Oh, yesterday my sons are in a rugby team and there was some discrepancy at the end of the game. Who won? The referee said one thing, the other coach said something else. And the winner got to qualify for state. Another team was, and I just stepped in to tell these kids who are bad-mouthing my two boys, you guys won. And they did. And, all the, and their coach overheard me. He was standing far away. Hey, who are you? Come over here. We need to go to the referee right now. And I'm like, oh, uh, uh, I've got bad, I got seats. I'm going to the. Can you imagine the apostles? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And they finally find him. And they said, everyone's looking for you. A lot of people look for Jesus and they can't find him because they're looking in the wrong place. Or maybe they really don't want to find him. Have you found Jesus? And if so, are you still following him? Or are you like one of these apostles? You were with him and then all of a sudden he's gone. Maybe you're like the paralytic and you need some friends to bring you to Jesus. Have you asked for help? So here Peter and them are like, everyone's looking for you. And what does Jesus say? And this is where the multiplication matters comes in. Jesus said to them, And I can imagine this was like speaking German or something to him. Let's go on to neighboring villages so that I may preach there. This is why I have come. 
Okay, if you're a good old Southern Baptist, when you hear that word preach, it's not standing behind the pulpit preaching. It is so much more than that. It is preaching, but it's teaching with power and with authority, but it's not just the proclamation of the word. It is healing people who are sick. It is casting out demons, and it is also preaching with his life living a life of prayer and of fasting and of humility and of power, of forgiving enemies and of being generous and being an ambassador of reconciliation. It's so much more caught than it is taught. So much more caught than it is taught. You see, as disciples watched Jesus, it wasn't just what he taught and what he preached, but it's how he lived. Because later on in the life of Jesus with his disciples, they come to him and ask, teach us to pray. Show us, why couldn't we cast out that demon? And when Jesus says, we got to go to other villages, he is starting not a prayer movement, but he is starting a kingdom movement of multiplication. Because Jesus was not just going to be for these, this small town of Capernaum right there in Galilee, but it was for the whole world. And Jesus wasn't just going to be, and I can't think of the word in English right now, so I apologize for that. But he was not just, oh, I wish I could think, I can't think of it in Spanish right now. And that was not tongues, okay? Jesus was not just unique for this tiny little group of people. But he's for everyone. You see, Scripture's very clear. And we can get in a big debate about Reformed and Arminian and all that. Scripture says that Jesus came and died on the cross for all sins. It says in Timothy that God desires that all people be saved. Oh, that fell off this thing. Jesus died on a cross for all. Now, he knows who he's chosen and who he's predestined, but we don't. And Jesus wasn't going to just stay in Capernaum, but he was going to go to all of Israel. And he was going to take all the sins of the world upon himself and die on the cross for the sins of the world, be buried, rise from the dead. That's the gospel first and always. And then he told them, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says in Matthew chapter 28, right before he goes to heaven, he says in Matthew 28, go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I've commanded you, everything, making disciples, You see, a disciple is a learner. It's a follower. And if you love Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you're called to make a disciple. You're called to make many disciples. All of us are to make disciples. We are to link arms with someone who's more mature than us in the faith and follow them as they follow Jesus. And then we're to grab someone else's hand and say, you follow me while I follow Jesus. And that person might be an unbeliever right now. As staff, every staff member of Brentwood Baptist Church, our whole church family, this year it's part of a covenant we're making where we need to be mentored by someone and also mentoring someone. We're also supposed to be in a small group. We are the body of Christ, and we see it in Acts chapter 2, where they gathered at the temple and from house to house every day. And I want to encourage all of you, if you're not in a small group, and I know we're kind of coming out of COVID and it's up and down and it's crazy, and we do need to be careful. But we need each other. And if you're not gathering in a small group, why? Why? 
And Jesus shows us the way. And so he focuses, he hyper-focuses on the 12. And he showed them for three and a half years how to do life. Multiplication. I have a math problem for you guys. My question is this. There, well, here's my statement first. There are 7.9 billion people on this planet right now. Right now, 7 point, almost 8 billion. That's with a B. Let's pretend that there's only one Christian in the whole world. Just one. There's one disciple of Jesus out of the 7.9 billion. And let's say in one year, in one year, this one disciple of Jesus, y'all can flip over, this one disciple of Jesus makes one disciple of Jesus every year. So at the end of one year, there are now two. And then those two, in year number two, each make one disciple. So at the end of two years, there are four. You get it? We're exponentially multiplying, okay? It's not two plus two, it's two times two, times two, times two, okay? At the end of year two, there's four. At the end of year three, there's, oh, y'all didn't learn good. There's eight. At the end of year three, there's eight. At the end of year four, there's what? Sixteen. At the year of, at the end of year five, there's what? Thirty-two. Then sixty-four. Then one hundred and twenty-eight. Then two hundred and fifty-six. After twenty years, there are one million four hundred forty. There are one million forty-eight thousand five hundred seventy-six disciples after twenty years. That sounds like a lot, right? That's twenty years. Guess how many years it would take to reach 7.9 billion? No. 33. The life of Christ. In 33 years, it's technically 8.13e if you do it on your calculator. Believers, billion believers. And it all starts with one. Who are you discipling? Who is discipling you? Let's stand, worship team, go ahead and come on up. Who are you discipling? And who is discipling you? You do not need a seminary degree to make disciples. Many times it's just one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. Inviting them to live life with you as you follow Jesus. But my two questions today is this. Who are you discipling? And who's discipling you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this awesome day. Jesus, multiplication does matter to you. And it's not a numbers game. It's because of your great heart, Father, that you desire and long for everyone to be saved. So, Father, for those here today who are, I would say, on the sidelines, they might be angry, bitter, depressed, sad, 
discouraged, or just flat out self-centered. Bring conviction. Bring encouragement. Father, may you reveal to us who you want to be discipling each and every one of us. And reveal to us who we should be discipling. We're never too young and we're never too old. Jesus, you showed us the great importance of prayer. And stir in our hearts a hunger for your presence, Heavenly Father, that we've never had. And even if we don't feel that hunger and even if it doesn't feel authentic, may we run hard after you because you're the only one that gives life. Jesus, even right now, for everyone here who is sick, who is physically suffering from an illness, a disease, maybe a broken bone, I declare your healing, Jesus, over them by your name and by your power. Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, you know those who are struggling just with emotional, mental challenges, difficulties, depression. It's real. Jesus, I praise you that you are, you are the good shepherd. You're the good doctor. You're the balm of Gilead. So Jesus, just pour your spirit upon their minds and their hearts even now. Bring healing. Bring encouragement. Father, for those who are just flat out being selfish and sinful, self-righteous, arrogant, or even bitter, bring conviction. Jesus, just shine your grace and your smiling face upon them. That they would see in you, Jesus, there's no condemnation. There's always new beginnings. Father, for those who are just so discouraged and are just feeling so beaten down, Jesus, grab both hands. Lift them up. Lift their chin up. Jesus, you know them. They need you. More than anything, Jesus, shine your light and love into our hearts that we would see you today that you would be glorified in our lives because it's not about us. It's all about you. We ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.